I, I'm Henry Bean, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about the two Jakes. <laughs> Welcome to the World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am your host, and my name is Andras Jones, but I'm not your only host. No, you're not. I am also the host. The two hosts. The two hosts. My name is my name is Brian Connolly. And we are wearing the same style shoes. Same shoes. <laughs> Have you ever met anyone else with your name? Andras your name, Jones? Like, are you kidding? No, like no, with the first name with the first name. Uh, uh only uh, only online. Other, uh, okay. A couple of other Andrases have have mm. sought me out, but no, there are there are no two Andrases <laughs> in my life. <laughs> How about you? Have you met any other Brian's? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a million of them. Uh, though there's ones that spell it with an I, and I can tell when they say it. I'm like, oh, you just said it with an I, so it's not the same. Okay, well, we're here to talk about uh, the two Jakes. Uh, have you seen this film before? I've never. This is the first time viewing. Okay, well, I'm curious to know your thoughts. Let's not give it. Let's not divulge it right away. Let's uh, let's let the audience wonder. I will come out. I chose this film because I think it's wonderful. Uh, wonderful is kind of a weird way to describe this sleazy, <laughs> dark, dark movie, but I think it's pretty great. And uh, and yeah, so let's let's play a clip from the film and then come back and talk about it. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Oh no. Oh no, Kitty. How could you? You told me you were going to the beauty parlor in Hollywood. And now I find you here, just where they said I'd find you, in room 19H of the... Bird of Paradise Motel. Of the Bird of Paradise Motel in Redondo Beach. At two in the afternoon on October 27th, 1948, with this man. <sighs> Mr. Berman, uh, it's unnatural to discuss what year it is when you're staring at your wife in bed with another man. Well, my lawyer said to be very specific. We'll establish the date. Just, uh... Everybody all right out there? Right. Are we okay? Relax, Mr. Berman. It's uh, just a tembler. A trembler? A tembler. Look, uh, I know how edgy you must be, uh, Julius, but... My friends call me Jake. Well, that makes two of us. So my friends call me. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> He's a Jake and I'm a Jake. Yeah, how about that? Two Jakes. Now, uh, listen, Jake. 
Uh, I never lost a husband yet. But, uh, I got a golf date at 1 o'clock, and if I'm not ready to tee off at 12.55, they'll break every club in my bag. You're kidding. That's terrible. No, that's the Wilshire Country Club. I'm lucky they let me join. I know what you mean. The Two Jakes from 1990 is the sequel to Chinatown, directed by Jack Nicholson from an unfinished script by Robert Town and nominally produced by Robert Evans. The film had a long and troubled production history, and when it came out, nobody wanted it. And that's a shame, because although, of course, it is no Chinatown, the film does an admirable job of continuing the story of Jake Giddies and the growth of Los Angeles. This time it's about oil and real estate and the legacy of Evelyn Mulray, whose death still haunts Nicholson's detective as he finds himself wrapped up in another confusing murder case. His client this time is Jake Berman, a Jewish land developer played by Harvey Keitel, who suspects his wife is cheating on him. When Keitel bursts in on his wife played by Meg Tilly with his business partner, the result is murder, but was it a crime of passion or cold-blooded killing? And if it was murder, what was the motive? Once again, Kittis has to navigate his way between the cops who see him as an accomplice to murder and the city's elites and mobsters who are always one step ahead of him. Forget about it, Jake. It's the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> And uh, that's 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 the film we're going to be talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so, how is the world wrong about the two Jakes? Oh my God! People hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. People... They still do. And it is so dumb. <laughs> I mean, it's not a perfect movie. Okay, maybe some would say the Chinatown is a perfect movie, and this is not that. But. I think it's just the right amount of everything it is, including being kind of shaggy and sleazy and even a little bit clunky sometimes, but all in ways that feel very true to the initial enterprise. Like, I think the first thing about making a film like this is not to do it wrong. And this film does not do it wrong. It's impossible yeah. to live up to the initial, to the first one, okay? But I just feel like it does everything it does so well, and it continues the story, and it's a story that I'm interested in continuing. And there was supposed to be a third one, but because this one failed, there never was. And that is a bummer, because <laughs> uh, Nicholson, I mean, I guess it's Nicholson's only franchise, Right? Uh, yeah. Well, um, wait, I'm thinking. <laughs> Did he do a sequel? Uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest again. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, huh. Yeah, I think you're right. This is the only time he's come back uh, for another. Or no, he's in. Isn't he in the sequel, The Terms of Endearment? Doesn't he show up in. What's that one called? Evening Star or whatever the second one's called? I mean, he shows called? up in Broadcast News, which is... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does he? Yeah, I... the Terms of Endearment sequel, I think he shows up in that. I've never seen it. I don't know anyone who's seen it. Maybe that's one we should check out for our, for our show. But I'm fairly certain he's in that. But other than that... Heartburn that 2. Is... 
Heartburn too. Here we go again. More heartburn. But <laughs> I think it's like I wonder if um, if people would hate this so much. It, it, it's it's a weird thing to think about because it's like if Chinatown didn't exist, would people hate this movie if this came out? But this movie can only exist because of Chinatown because so much of what this is about, all of it pretty much, is a continuation of it. So it, I don't know if this could even exist as its own story. I guess it could, but like, I just feel like this, it's interesting. This came out the same year as Godfather three, uh, also with Eli Wallach. So he was just in sequels that people hate <laughs> in 1990. And it's the same thing of like everyone's shitting on Godfather three, which I totally think is great. And, you know, if you want to hear more, listen to our uh, Director's Wall episode uh, of my other podcast. We cover Godfather 3 fairly recently, a few months ago. Uh, but the same thing of, like, everyone's comparing it to the previous movies. But, like, these are considered the greatest movies of all time. Like, you're going to lose if you compare any movie to Chinatown or The Godfather or Godfather. It's just, like, it's ridiculous you know to even do it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's stupid. It, think about... The Thin Man and the films after The Thin Man. You know, it's like, that's how I think of this. This is a continuation of the Jake Giddy's story. And yeah, Chinatown, the one that launched it, is great. And it doesn't take anything away from it. Although I would say, here's something I would say. I think most people would agree that Roman Polanski shouldn't have been able to come back to America and direct the two Jakes. So you've got your Polanski-less <laughs> Chinatown movie, and you hate it. Like, come on, people. Get, like, what, what do you want? I don't even think he would have done it, even if he was able to come back. I don't think he seems like the kind of guy that wouldn't have an interest in 1990, what was he doing? Frantic or something like that? Like, he was, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, if <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if Roman Polanski could have come back to the United States, yeah, I guess with Town and Evans and the whole team back together and a ton of money, money, and also <laughs> they were trying to make this from much earlier. Like it's <laughs> the the story of how long. Like they were trying to make this in the late 70s with Dustin this... Hoffman as the Harvey Keitel role. Oh, that's how huh, weird. I, I read that they there was a point where Robert Town was going to direct it. Yeah. And Robert and Robert Evans, Evans was going to play, play the Jake, the, the other Jake, Jake character, which would have been truly wild. I kind of like I love Kytel in this movie, but I kind of wish that that movie existed. Just Evans back as an actor, just like him playing off of Jack Nicholson. Like that would have been. I think people would have liked that movie on some level even for whatever. Yeah, <laughs> but if they had been able to make this in the late 70s or early 80s. It, it, and like, yeah. I think it's... So I watched Chinatown and this back-to-back. -back. I just did a double feature yesterday. Nice. Because <clears throat> I was like, fuck it, let's just do it. And yeah, immediately you're like, this isn't like Chinatown, but that's... That's great because like it really does like the way Nicholson directs it, the way it looks like it feels like a different movie. It's the same character. It's the same world, but they're not even trying to emulate the style of the first movie, which is the right thing to do, in my opinion, because so many movies, sequels, the problem is like, like if you watch something like more American Graffiti or 2010, uh, both movies that I like. 
the, the what weighs those movies down is when they try to emulate the original in some way uh or like the name your terminator sequel and then that's when the movie just kind of doesn't work because you're thinking too much of the original because they're trying to make it feel like it but it's like but you're not roman polanski you're it's, it's not 1974 it's not gonna feel like it and so i like that nicholson just directed this movie and does some crazy things to the camera and these moments and that even the tone feels it's its own unique thing that is separate from Chinatown, even though it is also a very good continuation of the character's story. Yeah. What? So I think Nicholson does a great job uh, as a director in this very, um, a very, what, what can I, boy, how what? Like it's a very compassionate kind of directing. Like it sense it's not like, <laughs> oh, I need to make a statement. It's like he yeah. is fully it, in service to this idea, to this project. He's directing in a very professional way, not in a. It's not like you said. He 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 makes some some bold choices. <laughs> yeah, some very bold choices that we can talk about. But uh but it, but it's very much in service of this thing, which is not what you think of as a movie star director. It's not a, it doesn't feel like a big ego trip either as no. a director or <laughs> as an actor. And, no, but it definitely I feel like just like uh when we were talking about the Indian Runner last month that like this feels like a movie directed by an actor versus the Polanski one, which feels like it's made by a a director, you know, person. And this 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 movie has, I feel, kind of a an intimacy that that Chinatown doesn't quite have. Like Polanski definitely is a little colder, is a little darker the way he directs and makes movies, you know, a little and <laughs> <laughs> very much, very much so dark. And this movie just like I was just struck by like. Just all the close-ups in this movie, and kind of like you're really hanging out with, with Jack Nicholson, and like the the camera isn't giving you kind of this bigger scope in the way that Chinatown is. This movie's in a lot of like cramped little rooms, and kind of like it just it just feels more. There's something a little more uh, neurotic about it, which works for for a mystery sort of movie. Like there's just something a little more close to to the characters than the original version, you know. Which I found was real, and and more, and there's a different kind of style. He's not trying to make it a '90s version of a film noir '40s thing. It really does feel very modern in a way too, in the way that Chinatown felt modern to '70s filmmaking. Doing film noir just feels very much like a '90s sort of thing. It's glossier, I think, than Chinatown. Uh, it definitely was a decision to not use the any of the original music from Chinatown. It had a different composer. It's not Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, it's Van Dyke it's, Parks. It's Van Dyke of, Parks, which of, is a different who co type of sound. And smile for the Beach Boys. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a very odd. It doesn't have the same exact feel, but that's great. It's. It, I think that's how it should be. Like I said. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, have you seen others of Nicholson's the films that Nicholson's directed? What are the movies he's directed? I'm unfamiliar. Uh, he directed Drive. He said that's mm. the that was his sort of uh, when he first broke through as a star and got a chance to direct. And that's a wild film all about 
campus revolutionaries and I think it's uh, I think Karen Black is one of the stars of it. It has a uncredited Terrence Malick screenplay. Huh. Um yeah, definitely worth checking out. Oh yeah, Bruce Dern, Karen Black, Robert Town is in it, Henry Jaglum. <laughs> huh. Um and announcer Harry Giddies plays the announcer number two. I think Harry Giddies is the was the name was uh, the namesake of J.J. Giddies uh, that Robert Town maybe he was writing writing the script while he was on this set. Who knows? Uh, he also <laughs> directed Going South, which I haven't seen in a long time, and supposedly was the reason he decided never to direct again. Because <laughs> the experience was so bad in 1978. Of isn't, that, isn't John Belushi in that movie? Yeah. That's so weird. And Christopher Lloyd. Uh, yeah, I've yeah I've never seen that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should probably check this film out. It might be a, world, a film the world is wrong about. And then he doesn't direct anything else until The Two Jakes. And again, he only decided to do The Two Jakes because... Basically because all the other directors who they trusted were too expensive. Like they wanted to get Mike Nichols at one point, but he was going to cost, he was just going to cost too much money. By the time they got around to making this movie, they had already, they were already like multiple million dollars in the hole because of a first attempt in 1985 that fell through because mm. Robert Evans was going through legal troubles and Robert Town was uh, being difficult. Um, there, the it originally, Keitel was going to be playing the role that was played by Ruben Blades, mm. the Mickey Nice gangster character. Yeah. Um, there was a point when they tried to take it to another company and make it with like just change not have it be a Chinatown sequel and they were going to have Harrison Ford star in it, which would have been really weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's all kinds of stories. Like one of the reasons that Nicholson was able to get the backing for this film was because he agreed when the fit, when the first attempt at this broke down in 85 Nicholson agreed to replace Mandy Patinkin in Heartburn. Mandy Patinkin ah. was originally the star of Heartburn. And he was on it for like three or four days. And they were like, nope, this is not working. <laughs> and Nicholson came in at the last minute. And because of that, he earned a lot of uh, credibility with the powers that be at Paramount that uh, Robert Evans didn't have at the time. Because he mm. was kind of on the outs because of his murder trial and cocaine addiction yeah. and probably just being insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The whole story there, I'll include, there's a link to a, I'll include a link to a site called JJ Giddy's investigations, a look at the film <laughs> of the films of private investigator, Jake Giddis. And there's a long article all about the multiple attempts at making this film and uh, and 
how it broke down and came back and broke down and came back uh, eventually to this version that Jack Nicholson directed for us. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was campaigning to play the second Jake at one point. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, is, what would that even be? <laughs> that even uh, com- comedian Whoopi Goldberg made a somewhat tongue-in-cheek suggestion in late 1985 telling reporters she'd like to play a male private detective opposite Jack Nicholson in the film in the role originally intended for Robert Evans. Uh, <laughs> she was yeah, simply well... <laughs> making a point that she, as much as anyone else, might be considered for all the major Hollywood roles, but Robert Evans uh, shot back some <laughs> things that hurt her feelings. He said, That's so ludicrous. It's a joke. I can't do a Robert Evans impression. Sorry. It's like I'm it's like saying I'm going to play the life of Libby Holman. If anyone is going to play that role, I'm going to play it. And if I don't, I'll choose who I wish to have in the role. And Whoopi Goldberg would not be my first choice, baby. I added the baby. (laughs) So it sounds like they need to do a season of the offer about the making of the two Jakes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I had no idea like such the weird production. Like, I just feel like this movie's so not talked about that it just it's like it doesn't even exist. And like, it's just no one brings this movie up. This isn't a movie that is mentioned or remembered fondly by anybody. Like, it's very weird. And like, I don't think this movie's great, but it's definitely not worth the amount of hate that is piled upon it. And we say that all the time on this show, but like, it is really weird. Like when you read the reviews of this movie, people fucking hated it. <laughs> and it's just, and like, it's still people will leave comments on IMDb or whatever. just being like, well, like what an awful movie. And it's like, it's not, it really isn't a bad movie at all. No. It's, uh, and I don't, I wonder if they even watched the whole thing or if they're just like, Oh, there's a sequel to Chinatown. Let's just shit on that. I have a feeling those people don't it. even like Chinatown. I have a feeling, yeah, like, maybe. would they like Chinatown <laughs> if they were seeing, like, they know that they're supposed to like Chinatown, but Chinatown is slow and sleazy and... Yeah, yeah, it it really is. <laughs> it's, you know, not and a, every, and people, it's not a feel-good movie. <laughs> people hate the director of that film. Uh, like, it's, it's just, yeah, the world is wrong. The world is wrong. Um, uh, so what else can we, let's, before we get into, I, first of all, I don't think we're going to try and unpack the whole plot of this movie. Just no, see it. It's I, a, no, I think it's, it's a very, it's, it's just, a very Chinatowny. Just, yeah. Like th- this screening of Chinatown I did this week was the first time where I really got a lot of what was happening in it. Cause I get so confused, you know, and, uh, and it's, and I think this is the same thing and I've only seen this one once now. So I miss a lot of like. And also, just like in Chinatown, it gets really confusing. Like, who's the bad person? Like, what what's actually going on? And at the end of this movie, you kind of realize there really isn't a lot of really bad people. Not as much. Like, no one on the level of, like, John Huston in the first movie, you know? So it's just, like, it's sort of a weird... It is kind of a weird mystery in that there isn't, like, some big villain at the end or anything. Like, the villain is just, you know, urban growth and <laughs> oil and... <laughs> You know, bigger, there, bigger, well, than pe- bigger than people, you know, uh, I think it's the, in both films. It's not that there's no villain. It's that everyone is compromised and has villainy or regret 
just stuck all over them. I think the difference, and I think you got it, is that Nicholson, as an actor, is because he's an actor, he comes at this with compassion for his characters. Whereas yeah. Polanski, who is a much more, I would say, um, as a director, he's much more rigorous in removing that sentiment, whatever you might call sentimentality, what I call compassion. Uh, and in his version of the world, all of these compromised people are villainous. Whereas I feel like in Nicholson's vision, all of these characters are compromised <laughs> and victims <Yeah. laughs> within this world. <laughs> like it's it's almost like the first one's about the people that create this awful world and they're the villains. And in this one, all these people are just kind of like now 11 years later, however many years later this is supposed to be, just like stuck in this system <laughs> that they, they've, it's been set up for them. And they don't mean to be villainous about it, but they're all just trying to make a lot of money or do what, or do what you think you do when you work for a big company or you know, for oil company, you know, like, is there going to be a story about someone in oil that doesn't seem like there's some major corruption or something really bad going on? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a gay can, it could, you would be lying. Uh, but like the characters in this, like Richard Farnsworth, I feel like if this was Chinatown, if this was Polanski, he would be more villainous, you know? And what he's up to would be seen as something really evil. But in this, you, he just kind of seems like, I'm just doing it. You know, I'm just doing what I'm doing. And then. <laughs> yeah, but I think the, I mean, the film does make a point. I think that's the difference. It's like it hints at it. Like, because Nicholson says, yeah, he's I'm sure that his Will Rogers routine works on some people. But I know what he's really about. But I feel like <laughs> but that's the only time he shows up. And it, yeah, if, yeah. if Polanski yeah. had directed the film, we would have got a reveal that Richard Farnsworth eats babies or like <laughs> he's part of some <laughs> secret society of clan <laughs> murderers. And, yeah. Or like Harvey Keitel, like you never really hate him in this movie. No, I like think he's he great. Is, I love him. In like this. you like you really think like they, finally I think we get movie, a Jew playing a Jew. Thank you very much. Is Sorry. Harvey Keitel Jewish? Yes, he is. I had to, <laughs> is he really? I it. Yes, he is. Yes. I had no idea. Uh, is he is he half Italian or is he just playing Italians in all those Scorsese movies? I guess he, no. I, I mean, according according Man. to his Wikipedia, he is a Jewish American actor. So there, there you, you go. go. There you go. It took us to 1990, <laughs> working our way backwards through the uh, Bruce Willis <laughs> Stephen Frears movie to find. Fine one, uh. <laughs> and and this is a film that has a that from its vi from the very beginning is taking on LA's anti-Semitism, yeah, and yeah. In, in a in a lot of very specific ways. So I Could, for, uh, for me that, they, that definitely rings because yeah, it's in the first scene they talk about like the country club that Jake uh, Jack Nicholson's Jake likes to play golf at. Yeah. And isn't there just some line? There's yeah, some he's like, they're like, lucky they, they let, let me, me in. Yeah. And he's like, and Kaitel's, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
it's this movie t- tries to tackle a lot of things i feel like just just like how chinatown did i think this is definitely a less angrier movie than chinatown but there's definitely anger behind sort of like and I guess when I read about what the third one was going to be about, it was going to be about sort of pollution caused by making the f- L- the freeway through mm-hmm. L.A. And with, that would have been fascinating. And what's cool is that actually is a, sort of the plot of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So they did get to make <laughs> that plot in a way <laughs> of the freeway being made. Uh, sadly, Jake and the Fat Man, not a continuation <laughs> of these movies. I was hoping. I looked it up. I was like, J- is Jake and the Fat Man... In this movie, Jake is the fat man. Uh, but, <laughs> sorry, bad bad joke. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I would I would have been cool if this was a trilogy, and it would have been cool if there was like more movies with this Jake Giddy's character, like you know, doing stuff in L.A. and I don't know, like if this movie was a hit, yeah, I guess we would have had a mid '90s, uh, even older Jack Nicholson in this character, which would have been great. Or if they had yeah. gotten it done, the if they had ma- managed to make the first one in '85, then then it, this would have been timed for the third one, right? Yeah. Also, there was an there was an alternate end to this, which I'm kind of bummed they didn't include, which they didn't do, and they shot they, but Nicholson just found it to be too sentimental. But it ends with, uh, and this is a true story. In 46, the uh, I think it was 46, but there was a snowstorm in L.A. And so it was going to end with a snowstorm in L.A. and Hmm. them parting in the snow and then pulling back to reveal all of these snowy neighborhoods, which Hmm. would have been a great way to end the film. But Nicholson chose not to go that way. Basically, I guess Town promised him a script and then pretty much went away and never finished the last 20%. So Nicholson oh. was always working with an incomplete script and trying to make sense of it throughout. Why did that happen? Was Town just mad that he couldn't direct it? Or? I don't know. Town was like being a dick, sounds like. <laughs> I like well, Town, but uh, like he was, he had, I think in the interim, he directed Tequila Sunrise, and that was a hit. And yeah. so he was feeling what, his oats a little bit. What year was that? Was that right before this, like 89? Yeah. And then this year, 90, was the same year he wrote your not favorite movie, Days of Thunder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> bad, he finished that script. Bad movie. <laughs> and basically, I guess that's what the, in this article they're saying, that at that point he was trying to hitch his star to Tom Cruise. And then he kept going with Cruise. I mean, it worked. Yeah. He wrote The Firm and, you know, he kept going. So Mission Impossible. Yeah. Hmm. Turn your back on Jack going with Tom. Okay. But also supposedly uh, Nicholson stayed very loyal to Robert Evans, who got his name on the film as a producer, even though he wasn't really able to do much producing because of his legal troubles and his addictions and pretty much everything else that went along with being Robert Evans in the late 1980s. But Nicholson insisted on screening all the dailies at Evans' home, which was a whole logistical, uh, additional logistical step, which in the middle of production was just was not a small thing. And he did it all so that Evans could maintain some level of, uh, you know, respect at Paramount. 
What the, a good friend the, Jack Nicholson is. <laughs> the friendship between Nicholson and Robert Evans sounds like, like that's a movie I'd like to see because those guys sound like they've just been through a lot of shit together and there are not many, there aren't a lot of stories about loyalty in Hollywood. <laughs> That is not. Yeah, especially yeah. Robert Evans got by this point. Everyone had turned on him, and nobody was left to kind of be his pal. I think other than Jack Nicholson, which is like a good pal to the, have. Yeah, because when you watch the kid who stays in a picture, this seems like this was the roughest time for for Evans. Was the eighties when everyone was just like, "We're not going next to that guy anymore." <laughs> so, uh, so then let's talk about the the cast of this movie because this oh, movie has a great cast and i yeah. feel like we've been kind of on a roll on season three of just picking movies that have just like these amazing casts <laughs> just packed full of incredible people uh some in this movie that i was not expecting to see in this movie um i was really i thought it was really cool that james hong was back as his character of khan from chinatown one of the few characters that kind of crossed over um and I thought that was really awesome to see James Hong kind of in a respectable film. Yeah, uh, the only ones who came back were James Hong and uh, Joe Mantell as Lawrence Walsh. And, that's his assistant? Yeah. Or the guy who helps, yeah. And Perry Lopez as Captain Lou Escobar, which was great. Yeah. He, he was, the, the film really seemed like it gave a little, gave some extra love to... Escobar that wasn't there before. Particularly, there's well, a yeah. great little voiceover that Nicholson does about him being a war hero. Yeah, which I thought was just a great little tribute. Well, and that's what's cool too about the time pass between this movie is it like, oh yeah, World War II happened between <laughs> the first movie and this movie, and so now you have some of these guys had to leave their jobs and go off to war, and then Captain Escobar he came back and he's got like a little like a what would you call it like a splint or whatever on his leg you know from his yeah. war injury um and some of these people have moved up a little bit you know in in their lives like like even jack's jake seems to have a nicer office seems to have a bigger staff like he's you know his his pi business has gone a little better so it's just kind of cool how it builds on it really does feel like it reminds me a lot like these the, watching these two movies together remind me a lot of those the L.A. Quartet by James Elroy, mm -hmm. and those. I, and then if anyone's ever read those books, like they're great. And like those books are cool because they'll kind of check in with some of the same people later on in their careers in the police force or in L.A. and and also going through how L.A. has changed, you know, from here to there. And uh, I just they think I think they did a pretty good job of that with this movie of kind of like you get that L.A.'s gotten bigger. You get that these people have stayed there and they've gone through this and now this is they were checking in on them which again is a shame that we didn't get to do it one more time and have you ever been on the lot at paramount yeah i have yes so for me one of the things like the way his office looks is so much like the design at the design style on the paramount lot yeah. And a lot of the places that they go to have that look. And I just feel like because because Chinatown is one of those films that supposedly saved Paramount is is such I feel like there's there's a directorial choice to really Paramount this up. 
<laughs> yeah, I wonder if they were allowed to shoot in some of the offices on the Paramount lot. Oh, or I'm sure. I, I I felt I felt the same thing watching it. It's like, oh, that looks like the offices by Lucio Ball's garden. Like when you walk into Paramount, it's on the left. And uh, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of cool locations in this because I had just been to L.A. a few months ago uh, and I saw you. But like it was really cool to see like them at the Librea Tar Pits and they're in the old observation area. And that's where we see the, the great Tracy Walter, who's in this movie. Oh, you're so appearing happy. on her show for a second time after uh, the hunter. <laughs> The Hunter, not as wild here as in The Hunter, but it's cool to see him in a movie and a year after he was with Jack in Batman. Yeah, I guess uh, they were an acting class. He was part of an acting class, uh, the Jeff Corey's acting class in L.A. That and that's how they, tight. they became friends. <laughs> I wonder if Harry Dean Stanton was in that class, too. Like those seem like these little side actor got weirdos that Jack Nicholson likes to hang out with through his entire life. <laughs> he let, It makes sense that Jack Nicholson would love to hang out with like the wild character actors, you know, of Hollywood that he would just have a great time. <laughs> I would, I wish that I just knew what was, was it like to hang out with Jack Nicholson and Tracy Walter? Like what was like a dinner? Like what was their dynamic? Is it like in these movies? <laughs> I don't know. But it was cool to see the original La Brea Tar Pits uh, observation thing, which still exists. It's still there. When I was there, it was sadly closed, but it's they, they still have the original. And then it was cool, too, to see the Max Factor building mm-hmm. uh, with all the crazy old makeup stuff and him going into the uh, for redheads only room. Right. And talk. And and, uh, and that is the actual Max Factor building. I was in there. And what's cool, that's now the Hollywood Museum. So if you go to the Hollywood Museum, it's in the Max Factor building. And the lobby, they kept more or less the same. So how it looks in this movie uh, is kind of how it looks now. And you can still go into the for redheads only room. I recognize it right away. It's like, that's the redheads only room. That's (laughs) the room with all the Lucille Ball stuff in it. Uh, And so it was cool that this movie kind of showed all these, like had all these actual little L.A. locations that are still around that you can still visit and kind of get a feel for what old Hollywood was like, what old LA was like. Yeah. Even though they, they did not bring Richard Silbert back. He did do a lot of, uh, location scouting for them. Hmm. So, uh, in, I don't know if that was the set when they were trying to do it in 76 or 85, but, uh, they actually had some different problems. Like, like some of the sites that they, that they researched in 85, uh, they went back to them and like a tree had been cut down so that then you could all of a sudden see a supermarket or something behind it. <laughs> and so they were, that was one of the struggles was of just mm. trying to make this over a long period of time. But I feel like they did a great job of capturing a lot of old, what looked like old LA. And I was mm-hmm. trying, I watched the film. I, I've watched the, I watched the film three times since yesterday trying and, <laughs> To just to try and really hone in on it and on the the later watch the later viewing i was definitely caught by just how much what a great job they did of uh shooting la for that period in 1990 so without using cgi or computers like it's like that's kind of what movies do now to make to hide the modern world you know uh 
Let's talk about how cool David Keith is in this movie. <laughs> Playing He's... just a great bastard. Yeah. The son of detect of Detective Loach who kills Evelyn Mulray in the first movie. And they were supposed to bring back that actor. There were several yeah. actors who are like not very famous who it said they weren't able to get them back, but I don't understand. Yeah, that actor's name was Dick ba- Bacalan, or I don't know how you say his last name. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, what's he doing? Yeah, why <laughs> was he too like, busy? No, nah, nah, to- I don't want to be in this movie with Jack Nicholson that I'm invited to. Yeah. that's <laughs> In my mind, it's like they got the notes being like, no, you need a younger guy. to like. I just don't quite buy that. That... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, these people the same would be thing, like, I'm too busy. Bruce Glover as the character Duffy. Yeah. He was supposed to come back, but he wasn't available. I'm like, Bruce doing Glover, what? What the hell were you doing <laughs> in 1989 that you're like, sorry, Jack, I'm not going to come and be in the sequel what, to the only. Or whatever you're doing, you just fucking quit. You just walk off the set of that movie and you go, so sue me. I'm going to be in the sequel to Chinatown directed by Jack Nicholson. Bye. Like, <laughs> it's. Like, Very I'm looking weird. at it. In 1989, <laughs> he was in one film, Hider in the House. Oh, the, uh, the um, isn't that the Gary Busey movie yeah. where he's hiding in the, <laughs> or no, what's, what's Hider in the House? That is it's, Gary Busey. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so that was the movie he had to do instead of, but I mean, I, yeah, I have a feeling that maybe they weren't quite in. Like, where did you read that they were actually invited back and in turned the it down? JJ Gitta's investigations? I just don't believe it. Yeah, because they must have also been paid. Like, what are the chances he was getting paid more on the Gary Busey straight to video movie over this Paramount, you know, giant production of the two Jakes? Bruce Glover, you, you crazy? Yeah. All right, he just wasn't invited back. He's yeah. so good in Chinatown. He doesn't really have a lot of lines. He has this creepy smile. Yeah. Looks a lot like his son. Uh, it would have been cool to see him back in this, but you know, it's uh, it wasn't meant to be. But David Keith is in this, and he's only in a few scenes. But he's so good. But he takes over those scenes. Like, like talk about an actor who can actually kind of stand his own against fucking Jack Nicholson. They kind of have these two showdowns. One that's like a minor one, and one that's a real one. And uh, they're both, I think, maybe some of my favorite scenes in the movie. They are the best. I think they are the best scenes in the movie. Because the first one is is funny where somebody calls the police station for Jake. And then David Keith is just a dick about it and just hangs it up. And is just like, no, you don't get you don't work here. You know, it calls here. <laughs> and then he then Eli Wallach comes in and he kind of sasses David Keith about it. And David Keith kind of reluctantly gives the phone up but it's like he's just kind of just a total <laughs> asshole immediately like he they clearly have known each other and don't like each other eli wallach he, <laughs> in that scene is so great it's that, that's just a great bit of comedy like it's it's clearly an actor's idea because it's just it's a bit it's a little, yeah. it's a little bit, a little comedy bit about the hanging up the phone and then the phone keeps <laughs> ringing. You're going to pick up the phone. <laughs> and then I love, I feel like Eli Wallach gets a little ad lib in because David Keith is like, he's being disruptive. You know, and then Eli Wallach is like, Disru- disrupting a murder is not all bad. And you can see David <laughs> Keith laughs like his character, <laughs> his character, I don't think is 
like that's a, a real human moment. That's not a character moment. And it was it's just fantastic. <laughs> uh, and but... then the then the other the big showdown. First yeah. of all, I want to say so. Nicholson must love David Keith because the way that first scene is set up when we see David Keith the first time he's standing like he's a gunfighter like he gets a movie star reveal in that opening shot like the movie is saying dun 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 this guy's a big deal (laughs) and he really isn't he's only in two scenes yeah But that second scene is so good. Yeah, with Tom Waits uh, egging it all on. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, a little weird Tom Waits cameo. It, it's like there's a like strange kind of like Coppola thing going on in this movie because you have your Tom Waits and your Frederick Forrest and Eli Wallach. It's a sequel in 1990 that nobody likes. There's definitely like a little bit of a, a dance with Coppola going on with this movie. It's Paramount. Like there's, there's something going on there. Like, I don't know. I can't sure. help but pick up on that. <laughs> Who else is putting Frederick Forrest in a in a movie? <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally fine to this. Uh, uh, I really love Madeline Stowe, and I'm, I always She's forget insane how much I love in her. This movie, she yeah. is complete. Like just a com- it's it's a comedic character. I love it. Well, the first scene, like just her character's intro is you hear like a gunshot in this crazy uh, kerfuffle. What was, is that a word? Kerfuffle. (laughs) Kerfuffle in in, uh, Jake's office. And it's her just like losing her shit because she is the wife of the guy that Harvey Keitel shoots, who's having the affair with his wife. And so the whole time in this movie, she just seems so unhinged. She tries to OD. She's like, like her, her, uh, her levels are up and down in this movie. It's so great. Well, and there's just and like, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's slapstick. Like the first, like every scene with her is slapstick. Like he come, she, uh, the first scene when Nicholson comes in and he's like, what are you doing to that poor woman? To his, to his <laughs> partner. And then his partner turns around and she kicks him. And then she's getting up to leave and he accidentally hits her, like strong arms her in the face and knocks her out. <laughs> and then when she overdoses, he has to pull her out of the bed with like throw her over his shoulder. And then when he's playing her the tape, she has the don't make me listen. Oh, you're going to make me all that stuff. And her, idiot, he rips her clothes off. It's all like and it's all like goofy, the tape scene is hilarious. Comedy. Because she's like, don't make me listen. And he's trying to turn it off. He's trying to help her out, but she keeps pulling him away. And yeah, it's like this in this movie. And that, that has to be a Nicholson touch. Like, yeah. The, well, like the first Chinatown, I feel has a humor, like that dark Polanski humor that he just puts in everything. Like it's there, whether you want it or not. But this one has more of the, that kind of mischievous Jack Nicholson sort of humor where he's not afraid to be a little goofier. Like he doesn't really care if like things didn't get this goofy in the first movie, but I don't care. I'm Jack Nicholson. I'm directing this movie. So we're going to have the Looney Tunes lighting the match on the box of Biff and, and blowing up in the air and flying in the air and landing <laughs> down. Like when that happened, I couldn't believe it. I was like, is he really going to like do the Wiley Coyote and start sit down, let a cigar and explode and fly in the air and land and just like blink, blink, blink. <laughs> <laughs> that happens in this movie. <laughs> How could you hate this movie having a scene like that? But like, yeah, the seduction scene between Jake and Lillian is so weird and it's so sleazy and it's so great. And just the way that like it's just the way they're 
trying to seduce each other. It's just like, it's just like they're both coming on with these weird vibes, but it's, it's so good and just so dirty. Yeah, I love it. It's like <laughs> Lillian, I'm trying to be a gentleman about this. <laughs> yeah. And then he tells her to take her clothes off and put her ass up in the air and wait for you know, him to tell her what to do or whatever. Uh, that scene is great. Uh, <laughs> Trying to be a gentleman here. <laughs> classic Jack. <laughs> You're getting some classic Jack. I love Madeline Stowe. I what was the first thing you saw her in? She I think for me it was uh it was gotta have been Last of the Mohicans, I think. And uh and I love her in Twelve Monkeys. Yeah. And the same year as two Jake, she's in uh, Tony Scott's Revenge, which is incredible and she's great in it. Um she's just so good. Yeah, I'm trying to think what was the first thing I saw her, and I'm checking out her IMDb right now. Stakeout? No. <laughs> I, I love her in Shortcuts. She's great in Shortcuts. She China Moon. In, I, I really like uh, her in Shortcuts. Yeah. 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 Uh, it might have been... Yeah. I guess it was Stakeout, which I didn't like. Did not like that movie. <laughs> really? I think your maybe... love of Dr Dreyfus. Can't... No, no. But oh, I, man. I, I, but I, yeah, I think it might. This was the film that definitely put her on the map. I remember when I, these were the scenes that I remembered the first after watching the movie the first time. It was all of her scenes, particularly the pink Angora sweater seduction <laughs> scene with Nicholson, because it's just so well, unhinged. Oh, and it's just it's really cool that they give this kind of role to a like a pretty leading lady, you know, like usually they're not the ones allowed to have, kind of go this wild in a big movie. Like it would be the men who are the characters, the male characters would be the ones kind of wiling out in this way. And and I love and I just love that she is just allowed to just kind of be ridiculous in this film. Uh, she needs to be in more movies. She's only done TV for like the last 20 years. Yeah. And that's just a shame. It's stupid. Like, I know Hollywood, it's illegal to be a woman over 40 in people, a movie. People don't say but, it. That's not true anymore. It's but, not true anymore. But get Madeline Stowe in a movie. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, did you ever watch, for one, at the, there was one point where I was watching that series, Revenge. It was pretty bad. Mm -mm. But the first season... I watched and she is doing, if you want to see some amazing Madeline Stowe, she's just chewing it up there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what is that show about? I don't even know what that is. It's about revenge. <laughs> it's about rich people being shitty to each other. I love rich people being shitty to each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the only way I'll take it. Uh, but yeah, she is just, I felt like the high point in this movie for acting wise for me, she is just great. And sadly, the character kind of goes away by the end. <laughs> like she's not in it. It kind of like, has to. It kind of has to because then it has to switch to Meg Tilly's character who actually is a big, you know, character. But like, there's this kind of hoping that somehow Stowe was going to be like the, the, the Faye Dunaway of this one. Like really. Well, she kind of is. That's it. I yeah. mean, she is the Faye Dunaway. You know, she's the one that Nicholson hooks up with. And her husband's the one who's killed. And yeah. yeah, it's just that. 
I mean, that's what the this is one of the things that I think the film does really well because it has to follow the Catherine Mulray story. I think that's the that makes a lot of sense. And but I but I like how it's not just the Catherine Mulray story. It's this whole new mystery. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and yeah, what Madeline Stowe is doing. It's just I just love the slapstick. The sleazy slapstick <laughs> of the whole thing. It's just fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we also have, as you said, Meg Tilly as, I guess, spoilers. We we played the spoiler thing, so you should know that there's spoilers. But yes, Meg Tilly. Did you know that she was Catherine Mulray from the very beginning? Um, I had a feeling when they brought up her name and then when they showed her, when she showed up, and having just watched Chinatown before, she had the same kind of like look in her eyes as the actress from Chinatown, that same kind of fragile sort of like something's wrong with this person sort of thing. So I, I kind of had a suspicion of like, I bet that that is her because it's definitely not Madeline Stowe. <laughs> so if this character's in this movie, it's got to be Meg Tilly uh, and it totally works. And when you watch the two movies together, it do, it's not, it doesn't throw you off that it's a different actress. It totally, uh, you know, cause in the, in the original movie, she's only 15 or whatever. So like this totally yeah. And she's she's not she has for his, for the impact that she had as a screen actress, she was in really very very few films. I'm Is look, that true? Yeah, I'm looking at her credits. She's like in less than 20 films. Like in her whole career? Yeah. I guess her sister gets all the all the yeah. parts. In 1980 she was in Fame, 82 she was in Text. A text with uh, Matt with Matt Dillon. Then eighty three is One Dark Night and Psycho two and The Big Chill, big year yeah. for Meg Tilly. Eighty four mm-hmm. is Impulse. And I don't know. That movie's great. Yeah. Eighty five is Agnes of God, which was a big deal. Eighty six is Offbeat. Oh, the Judge Reinhold cop. Uh, Eighty eight <laughs> is yeah. Masquerade and The Girl in a Swing. And eighty nine is Valmont. And then 90 is The Two Jakes, 92 is Leaving Normal, 93 is the body, is body Snatchers, 94 is Sleep With Me, and then she's not in anything again till 2016 with Anti-Birth and 2017 War Machine. That's it. And then TV, she's, she's done some TV. Um, huh. But... Yeah, I wonder if she just retired or yeah. just like like this like a lot of people leave and do theater. In 1995, she married John Callie, an American film studio executive, 30 years older than her. Uh, and in 2002, she married her current husband, a writer named Don Kalame. Anyway, it, she sounds hmm. like she probably she probably just walked away. But what an impact! Like really, like I. If you ask, I don't know if people know who Meg Tilly is now, but people of my generation, I think of your generation, would be surprised to know that that's how few films she's been in, considering what an impact she had. Yeah. So I'm glad she got to do this one. Yeah. And uh, I think she's very good. She's she's doing the Meg Tilly thing, which is this soft-spoken, very realistic sensitive performance wouldn't you say yeah yeah which is what you kind of you expect from the character yeah yeah so totally cast well (laughs) 
Um, okay, so who else do we... Van Dyke Park shows up as the prosecuting <laughs> attorney. He's very good. He's also yeah, you have also a, did the music. Uh, you have Ru- Ruben Bla- Blades. Blades. Blades as great. Mickey Nice. Uh, yeah, playing like a gangster. Uh, he's kind of playing the he's playing the Polanski role because he has the whole scene with the, you know, like there's some things that they are repeating, and one yeah. of them is the scene where he has a ice pick and he's waving mm-hmm. it in front of Jack's face, and you think, okay, which, which gonna, orifice is this going to go into? <laughs> but again, Nicholson is a much nicer, a much more compassionate yeah. director. <laughs> And he's just, he doesn't let that scene go to the place that Polanski I, I, took it. I, Yeah. I do love, though, that Jake does have a little nose scar. You can see it, at least on the DVD. You can see that he's got a little scar where Polanski cut him in the first movie on his nose. Um, I was hoping though, he was going to try, he was going to pierce his ear. <laughs> Thing is, though, like that doesn't happen, but there is a lot of, like, Head, like head trauma to Jake in this yeah. movie. A lot of him like hitting his head, landing on his head, getting cracked on the head to the point where you're like, you must have a headache, guy. You must be like, really, like, don't go to sleep. Don't lay down. It's <laughs> like constant blunt force trauma to the head. Uh, the Jake must be a little brain damaged after the two Jakes. Probably. Like, no, one, no one can get hit in the head that many times and be okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and so I, I guess that uh, Harvey Keitel. Yeah, I think he's, Ke- I think he's great. There are people who say that he wasn't sleazy enough. That if Evans had played the character, it would have had more yeah, but, sleaze. And but is the if, character supposed to be sleazy? Yeah, I, I mean, didn't like, think so. I I, I don't love think that's how sympathetic he is. No, I don't think – what's interesting about this movie versus the first one is that there's never a point where I think he's villainous. Like even when he kills the guy and you think, oh, is it the mo- – oh, it's his partner. Oh, there's a motive. It doesn't feel like he's got some creepy thing, thing going on. Like there's never a point where he isn't – which is it, which is interesting because Harvey Keitel can play a real creep and can play a real a, a disturbing person. But in here, he's just like really – like – more sympathetic than even the other Jake as a person, I think, in this movie. Uh, especially when it's revealed sort of like his his true motives and what he's going through. And then his final scene is is like really powerful. Yeah. So like it's it's funny. Like I read that I guess they wanted Jack Nicholson to fire Harvey Keitel and put in like a more bankable star. And Jack Nicholson was like, no. That's not going to happen. And he, and he made sure to tell Harvey Keitel that on the set, being like, don't you worry about it. Like, I will not let them fire you. Like, no way. And uh, <laughs> that's that's Harvey Keitel has been fired off of other movies before. <laughs> Again, Coppola Connection originally was going to be the Martin Sheen character in Apocalypse Now. Uh, it didn't work out. They fired him. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, no, he's just yeah, really good. Like a a, a character that could have been a creep, and like I think that's maybe the one, though the one problem I have with this movie is it never felt like there was like a big mystery that I was hoping for them to figure out. It kind of felt like I figured it all out at the beginning, but that doesn't seem like that's really the point of this movie. It's different than how Chinatown has this kind of big dark mystery, and this one is more like 
I feel like it's kind of all on the table a little earlier on and you're just kind of watching the events play out. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't quite have that film noir, like twisty, turny. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't, he's not, Nicholson isn't a disciplined, a cold, disciplined director who's going to tease you and lead you on and mislead you and get you to where (laughs) he wants you to get. He's very, he's much, he seems like he's much more seduced by the moments and the, like the, the, the actors, the actors moments and the, the, the fun stuff. And, yeah, to me, this is yeah. more of a, a like a drama than it is a mystery. Like it's like a crime drama, right? I would, I would, I wouldn't even really call this movie a mystery, even though he's playing a detective. It's just more about these people living in this town in this time and sort of like the their lives and how they're intertwining and sort of the problems they're all dealing with on a you know a big level and on an intimate level. And uh, that that's just a very, I think, unique way to approach a sequel to a movie that's known for its big you know reveals and twists and yeah and uh there are a couple of other performances you mentioned frederick forrest shows up in this i think he's great as the as a corrupt attorney working (laughs) for richard farnsworth's character and kind of for the madeline stowe character yeah and uh oh and rebecca broussard who plays Nicholson's secretary, who is the mother of his children. Uh, they never got married, but that this is the time when they were together. Oh, and I didn't make that connection. That's okay. what broke up his relationship with um, Angelica Houston. Was, when was it this movie or were they already together when like, was it meeting it was, her on this it movie? Was, no, it was before this. She's in the movie because... Uh, because they are dating yeah okay all right um and she does appear in a few movies with jack she's in mars attacks as well mm-hmm. as, a, as a hooker <laughs> and she's in man trouble as a hospital administrator uh so yeah <laughs> he gave, not giving her, her roles, great but... roles but <laughs> Yeah, hospital administrator, hooker. I don't know. These these are the roles people want, right? Don't have names. I don't know. Come on, <laughs> throw me a bone. Uh, <laughs> uh, throw me more than a bone, Jack. Please. Uh, so I think yeah, those are the those are the main actors yeah, who show up in this film. And Farnsworth is good for his one scene, like like in a just like with Richard Farnsworth and anything. He just seems like just a. Nice guy, even though Jake thinks he's pulling a fast one on people. Uh, <laughs> he is. He is. Yeah, he is. He's fracking the fuck out of the right. out of the <laughs> land. Yeah. Is uh, and I like that. Like, is this one of the first movies that have fracking in it? Yeah. Uh, like, and like what he's doing, what Richard Farnsworth character is doing, is totally what uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character is doing in There Will Be Blood, where he's like sneaking in sideways under the earth to grab the oil from beneath the. <laughs> From beneath, this. beneath land that's not his, and then that causes a lot of problems for Harvey Keitel's subdivision as like things are falling into the ground and exploding, and it's just, uh, yeah, and uh, it's it's yeah, I think it's like it's cool to go from uh, the water problems and the drought in the first movie to oil and fracking in, in this one. 
Yeah, so like I said, we're not going to go through the whole plot of this film, but let's. there might be a few points that we could discuss. One thing that I, I love the music, the opening theme song, Don't Smoke in Bed, uh, sung by Peggy Lee, is really catches a vibe, and I, re- and I, I just dug it. Nicholson's clearly pretty hip about music. Earl Palmer shows up in the green parrot club scene, playing jazz in that club. That's pretty cool. Let's see. What were some of the things were the, that that stuck out for you? Any uh, particular I, I think this movie looks great. Like the, the Vilmos Zygmunt is the yeah. DP on it. Yeah, and it gorgeous. just like... So many sunset shots that must have taken a long time to wait around for. Uh, and yeah, it doesn't look anything like Chinatown, but it has its own unique look. I feel it has more of like, there's more oranges, there's more color to it. It just, it has like this kind of feels That's hot. Almost a tequila uh, sunrise kind of feeling. Oh, I don't know what that movie looks like. I've never seen it. <laughs> well, they, I mean, just the word, it looks like there's a lot of tequila sunrises in this film. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I think he like that was it was smart to hire to hire really really good uh, DP you know for for this movie, and uh, so that stood out for me just like how it looks like the weird like the scene with uh, like the first scene where he gets hit on the head like the way it's shot and just like the way like the cameras spin around and there's just a lot of like just odd camera choices that I really liked uh, in this movie. Um, I liked all the earthquakes. Lots of earthquakes in this movie. (laughs) Lots of earthquakes. Lots of like Jack Nicholson is running panicked into a door frame and wondering why no one else is joining him and just being like (laughs) this and or him hiding under the desk uh, because there's an earthquake. Uh, I like that. That seems like that's like comedy, you know, Uh, but also kind of. Is it because of the fracking? Is that is that is this Mother Earth uh, getting angry, shaken back after getting drilled into it? It's, so it's it's a little bit symbolic there too. Um, yeah, all the earthquakes totally unexpected because like that usually earthquake scenes are only in comedies or it's in the movie Earthquake. There's not usually in a drama. Like most movies that take place in L.A. don't have earthquakes in it, even though there's always earthquakes in L.A. So. It's. I like that they they included that in there. Yeah, and it just as a metaphor for like the idea of just like the earth. You can't trust the earth that you're standing <laughs> on. That's how corrupt L.A. is. You can't even trust the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a great little uh, little earthquake nerds bit where he says it's a. He says it's a tembler, and a cartel says. I mean, uh, Nicholson says it's a tembler, and Kaitel says trembler. Says no, tembler. <laughs> I've never heard that word. <laughs> tembler is an earthquake or earth tremor. The word tembler first appears in 1876 and is an American word inspired by the Spanish word temblor, which means shake or tremble. So there you oh, go. Okay. Next time you're in earth, you're in an earthquake area, and you feel a tembler, you'll know it's not just a, it's not a trembler <laughs> or a tremor. So there you go. A little, a little, just like I say, a little uh, stuff for the earthquake nerds. 
Quakeheads, we call them. Uh, oh, another actor that I failed to talk about is Jeff Morris is really good in this. He's the other assistant to Jake. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and he must be friends with Jack Nicholson because he was also in Going South. He's also in The Border. He's in Ironweed. Uh, he's after this. He's in The Crossing Guard. He's in Anger Management. <laughs> so clearly he's somebody in the... Uh, Nicholson universe of some pals, the old old Western television actor who you would mostly would know as Bob from the Blues Brothers, who runs Bob's Country Bunker. So, oh yeah, that's Jeff Morris. Jeff Morris. We like uh, both kinds uh, of music, country and Western. <laughs> and he's in Payday, the great uh, Rip Torn uh, country music uh, movie from the seventies. And uh, he's just really good as he's just kind of sweaty and just like. Uh, just like working for Jake seems like a horrible thing to be his assistant. You have to constantly be tackling, you know, people in the office or uh, snooping where you don't really want to be. And it seems like a lot of hard, uh, hard earned minimum wage. I have a feeling they're not getting paid minimum wage. That's a very (laughs) successful company. I bet it's, I bet it pays well. I kind of get the sense that Nicholson is a, is a generous, he's he's a fair boss, a generous employer. Okay. All right. I mean, uh, maybe, but maybe you're bummed because they're like, you could have extorted all this money from these rich people. And instead, you just give them the x rays and all this. Like, <laughs> maybe they're more corrupt than he is. They wish he was, he was more of a corrupt player. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and there's also, I like the whole sub, the whole thing of the gimmick of the tape and the murder on the tape and him listening to the tape and him playing the tape for other people. And because you never really see it, the murder play out in the movie, you kind of get the end of it. And even at the beginning, like the beginning, you kind of only see it from the point of view of Jack Nicholson recording the tape of this hotel murder. And uh, and I really like the courtroom scene where he plays the tape and he's totally fucked it up and doctored it. And <laughs> and Madeline Stowe starts to freak out and Meg Tilly is crying. And it's just like that is such a great moment. Of uh, and Jack Nicholson just has a little smirk on his face, being like, "I don't know, this is the tape. What do you want?" Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> uh, and again, like a generous act on his behalf after he learns sort of what Harvey Keitel's actually been up to, uh, and how he's been a, he's been sick, and how he's trying to help uh, Faye Dunaway's uh, sister daughter from the first movie, which is also all Jack Nicholson character wants is for her to be okay and have a good life and have like a happy life. And so again, it's like this movie doesn't end on the same dark note as Chinatown does. Yeah, there is something like the whole thing of the first movie is Jack is doing everything that he thinks is the right thing, but everything he does that's right ultimately leads to the wrong thing happening. Yeah. And he's trying so hard not to let this to let that be the case. And again, I feel like if Polanski had been at the helm, he would have fucked things up again. <laughs> yeah, because that's yeah. what it, that's what it should be. I mean, really, to be honest, that is that that is a I would say a flaw. That's I still I, I like I love the film and I and I like the way it is. Because that's the way that's the film Nicholson made. But yeah, if it had been able to if it had stayed true to the feeling of the first one, 
then he would have ultimately fucked things up for Keitel <laughs> and Meg Tilly. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, this is also, though, a decade later, maybe he's learned. Maybe he's grown as a person. Uh, who knows? You know, like it doesn't feel well, I mean, totally yes, course, weird. That, that, like, yeah, but that's – but then it would be – but think how much more powerful it would be if then – even though he still like he does it so much better, he's a, he's a better detective. He makes better choices, but still, <laughs> it doesn't matter. But, he's still but, going to ultimately. That's his curse. So that's what yeah. I think. That's what makes the the original film so great, and what makes yeah. But <laughs> you know, I get but, I, like I get it. That's as an actor, you don't want to do that to your character. That's yeah, why you they, need directors and writers <laughs> to yeah. Who, are sociopaths push you to do so yeah i mean like it's just but it's just not in the bones of this movie like chinatown is a very mean movie i love it it's one of the great movies of all time but it's a mean movie like it just feels kind of mean all the way to the end uh and it's kind of cruel to its characters uh and it's great <laughs> and but that's just not this movie like this like i get to see jack nicholson being like that just wouldn't be very nice <laughs> you know like it's just it's like <laughs> and like it just feels like that with everybody like even the farnsworth character who should like be hated by by like even jake doesn't really like he kind of sees that he's a phony in his in a way he's trying to be nice but there's but there's not like the same like you don't get the same fuck you feel like you'd get with the jo John Houston character in Chinatown, you know? Yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. and it just, you know, and you don't get that with anybody in this movie. There's like, even the people that fuck with him, like the gangsters and stuff in this, it's not as threatening well, and yes. scary. His name's Mickey it... nice. First of all, his, his name <laughs> is like, nice. And the closest is with David Keith, but even after their fight, they seem kind of okay with each other. Just sort of like, ah, that got out of hand. You know, it's not like, don't fucking talk to me. I fucking hate you. Like, it's like, it's just a different thing going on in this movie. It's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's an, I, I don't know whose choice it was. It's a kinder, I mean, I guess, a kinder, gentler, gentler Chinatown. They should have put that on the posters. Yeah. <laughs> a kinder, kinder, gentler Chinatown. <laughs> And the third movie should have just been a flat out musical, right? right. right? <laughs> and just keep getting nicer as you go along. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So in '76 they tried to make this, and that would have been the version with Nicholson and Hoffman, and that would have yeah. been that would have been the best version. I mean, come on, 1976 Nicholson and Hoffman that would have been phenomenal. And they never made a movie together am i right i don't think so that because that just would have been too much to handle god that would have been good and then in 85 <laughs> uh it was going to be with kelly mcgillis and kathy moriarty moriarty was going to play the um madeline stowe role okay that would have been good yeah. but not not the same it would have been but it could have been great i mean i mean she is great yeah she has such a quality and i guess so Joe Pesci and Dennis <laughs> Hopper were in the original. We're going to be. Oh, and Roy Scheider was in this, was supposed to be Jake many, many times. He was associated with it over and over and over and over again, but then eventually yeah. wasn't. That would have really not worked because he seems way too nice. 
Like he does, like he, like that would have been too much. Like, well, clearly there's nothing bad going on with Roy Scheider. Really, you think he uh, seems really nice? I always think he seems yeah. a little bit. But not like not the same way as Harvey Alan Alda. What, what? No, I just feel like like maybe it's because he's the dad in Jaws, and just like he's usually kind of like. I don't know, like not in the same, like Harvey Keitel brings so much with him of like, oh, you could be bad. You're Harvey Keitel. Like, like you're not to be trusted all the time. Whereas Roy Scheider, I don't really get that vibe from him, you know? Like, I don't, I don't, Joe Pesci would have been maybe too bad feeling where you would have had no sympathy for Joe Pesci if he was supposed to be the Jake character, I'm guessing. No, I'm trying to uh, think he or might... Or was he going to be Mickey Nice or something like that? Or... No, Harvey Keitel was Mickey Nice. I'm trying to find where... Yeah, so Dennis Hopper and Joe Pesci were originally considered for the role of Jake Berman. So yeah, they were both <laughs> they were both in the running for that. Uh, and both not Jewish. Mm, don't think so <laughs> i mean they would have to rewrite it there's no way you could pass joe pesci is not italian <laughs> that would have been a different character sorry that hey you uh, know what they did de niro as a jew in casino and so i think you can I, yeah nicholson made the right choice i think i think uh yeah having uh, kaitel kaitel's great in this role i'm really it's it's it, it's actually one of my favorite I think it might be one of my favorite Kaitel roles. It just has some heart that is not usually there mm-hmm. for Kaitel. Yes, and something really sad. Like he's really sad in this movie, and I feel like you don't see a lot of really sad Harvey Kaitel. He's a little cocky or something, but here there's like a sadness that he's bringing. And you know, I couldn't help. So I was just looking at all kinds of different Jack Nicholson stuff, and in his IMDb. I and I hate to even talk about this stuff because it's it doesn't really matter, but I couldn't help but look at his salaries. <laughs> you know what? So on Batman from 1989, which we made right before before Two Jakes, he was paid six million dollars to play the role of the Joker. Fine, that's great. He had a profit percentage on it. He made sixty million. Yeah, I mean that was a big movie. <laughs> Jack Nicholson made he made twenty million dollars to act in anger management. Think about that. <laughs> you know that's that's the it's what you gotta. <laughs> if he you made want a, Jack, you gotta pay. You gotta pay the fee. He made a mere five hundred grand for Chinatown. <laughs> but crazy. Sean Penn was able to wrangle up $10 million to pay him for The Pledge, a film that I'm sure did not make that money back. Or need to even cost that much money based on The Indian Runner. Yeah. Uh, so this is our is this our, this is our third Nicholson movie, right, that we've done? We did Missouri Breaks and what else? Wolf. Wolf. Oh, Wolf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're at, th- we're at three. Three for, um, for Jack. It's uh, yeah. Uh, who? It's crazy to think that even the biggest actors of all time can still be in things that the world is wrong about. Oh, many. many. <laughs> are there any other Nicholson films that you feel like are gonna are gonna end up on our? Oh, uh, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I mean, anger management. I don't think we'll do, but like, 
that movie's really good and he's very very funny in it and seeing him and sandler kind of both be in a movie like the two great kind of like yeller scream you know angry guys in movies together in a movie is really fun and uh i could see you picking uh um Mars Attacks. Yeah, I was just about to say Mars Attacks is a movie that I think a lot of people shit on. I would and pick Blood is, and Wine. That movie's great. He's great in Blood and Wine. Yeah, that's a movie nobody talks about that one. Isn't that uh, that's a Raffleson, that's a Raffleson right? Yeah. yeah. And it's totally good. It, it, that, that's a great, yeah, that's a great movie. Ooh, um, he's a shitbag in that movie. <laughs> uh, do you like Hoffa? I love Hoffa. Hoffa's good. Uh, Hoffa's totally great. Um, I think that's a movie that nobody thinks about or cares about. And that's a Mammoth script yeah. directed by Danny DeVito. And I don't know. I just think he does a great job as Hoffa. And that's just a, an incredibly compelling movie that nobody cares about. Um, and trying to think another movie that i don't know what people's opinion or not but i was kind of floored by and i'm surprised people don't talk about is his version of the postman always rings twice um it got some attention on the most recent season of karina longworth's oh did it you must remember this in her erotic 80s yeah it's steamy also david mamet script um also like this film features a man putting his hand in the lady's underwear (laughs) <laughs> yeah when he's fe- when jake is feeling through stowe's underpants it's like he's looking for something <laughs> yeah, but i he's think he's just yeah i think he's just All looking right. for, well, i mean i know he is <laughs> but it's like he's looking for something more than just what's supposed to be an underwear like it seems like he's like digging around like it's it's not a caress it seems like he's kind of like digging around in there which i mean i guess if he had the opportunity <laughs> i guess if that's allowed yeah dig around in some underwear i don't know but uh, just that was an odd again just adding to the oddness it's of that sleazy, scene like that it's, the, the, it's I like think a, the two sleaziest shots in this film are that and him putting the gun in david keith's mouth and saying suck it suck it <laughs> oh yeah suck it yeah yeah you know this is that's the jack nicholson touch that's the flair sleazy. that he brings like Sleazy. even Polanski didn't have Jake digging around in somebody's underwear. That was like even Polanski drew the line at, at that and was like, "No, I'm not gonna do that." But Jack Nicholson dares to go to some strange foreplay, <laughs> very strange. Right? He's not like caressing. He's like he's like digging around. Like he's looking for change. Right? <laughs> like his hand, like he's moving around a lot in a weird in a way that I've never touched a behind. I, I don't know. I just it's. Uh, an interesting actor well, choice, but in this town, he's the leper with the most fingers. <laughs> I know. He does. That is a great line. There's so many good lines in this movie too. Um, but I feel like we need to watch going South. I feel like that could be a thing that, that uh, I know a lot of people really hate that movie. That could, maybe that's uh, the next really one we got to cover. It? I mean, I know Nicholson the hates few, it. The few people that have watched it that I just in my circle hated it. Uh, said that it's like really gross and just like really like just like offensive a lot of people said it's really offensive and and how exactly i don't know i don't know if it's like rapey or if there's some race things in it because of the era i don't know but i've and i know that it's also never talked about when people you know praise john belushi and it's got a crazy cast of people 
uh, you know, the first time Danny DeVito came back post One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack. So clearly this is the beginning. And Christopher a, Lloyd. And Christopher Lloyd. And Tracy Walters in it. And Ed Bagley Jr. And Ramsey's in it. Lynn Shay is in it. I feel we need to maybe watch Going South for the future. Maybe not now, but like one to consider just to consider, you know, just in case. Because, again, it's him directing it. And it's just something that, that kind of like screams our show, even though we've never seen it. And we, we could be totally wrong. But there's just something there, I think, perhaps. Yeah. And uh, one thing going back to the uh, the whole thing about the you were talking about how the recording device is a cool aspect of this film. I feel like if they had made this in 76, then that would have really sat right there in that uh, paranoid 70s Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nixon Watergate vibe. And I think that's just lost on the audience by the time we get to 1989, 90. But uh, yeah, just one of the things I noticed about the film that it connects it to its 70s roots. Um, Okay, well, forget about it, Brian. It's the (laughs) late 80s. (laughs) I do like that they say the title of the movie at the very beginning of just to be like hey that we're the two jakes or whatever <laughs> like when he you're a jake i'm a jake the, people call we're me the jake. two jakes <laughs> we're two jakes we're two jakes we're the two jakes <laughs> uh yeah very yeah an odd movie i feel and i think uh people should uh it's it's worth checking out not worth the hate and it's definitely i feel just it's, it's, it's an, an, an experience that one should uh, have at least once. Just check it out. Like, just give it a chance. It's on HBO Max right now. Hey, and it's you know, very easy to find. There's one scene. I'm, I, so the film's playing while I'm watching it, while we're talking. And at one, 20, one minute and 25, one hour and 25 minutes, there's a scene where Jake drives and parks his car in front of it looks like an apartment building you see the griffith park observatory in the background and that building that he's in front of i'm pretty sure that that's the same building that they use as the front of vic's place in mad dog time oh i'm hmm. looking at it the, the way the tree is that i thought it when i was watching it the first time and there there can't be i feel like there must be a bunch of different places that production designers in la know that they can use to get that vintage feel so yeah. i don't know hmm. but that opening shot where they go in and it's like vic's place it was beautiful it was fucking beautiful like i think that's i think that's I think that that is featured in the two Jakes. Okay. As well, so. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, that's the two Jakes. <laughs> There's one other thing I was thinking about about this film, and I'm recording this after the fact. Just that for a movie that deals pretty directly with anti-Semitism in post World War II Los Angeles. It's uh, it's overriding theme of gas. Tracy Walters saying, Mr. Berman, whether it comes from an old marsh or baked beans, 
All gas is natural. Gas is gas. And the fact that Harvey Keitel's Jake, the Jewish Jake, is in the business of gas, and he even kills himself in a chamber full of gas, uh, it makes me think that that had to be an intentional uh, aspect of the writing. And uh, it took me a while to get it, but I got it. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. Hi, I'm back, and this is going to be weird. It's going to be a weird way to end this episode. You may be wondering, where is Brian and that infectious laugh that we all love? Um, I am and have been wondering the same thing for the last couple of months. We recorded what you just heard in September. And in October, end of October, Brian, who has been open on this podcast about his mental health issues, let me know rather out of the blue that he either needed to take a break from doing the podcast or needed to stop entirely. And the reason uh, he told me at the time was because there... uh, His writing partner, Zach, who you will remember from his appearance on episodes of this podcast where we discussed State of Grace and Birth and Destroyer, uh, he was engaging in some erratic and maybe irresponsible behavior, and it was messing with Brian's head. I don't want to get into too much of it, but this was the reason he gave me, that uh, his his writing partner was behaving in ways that were making his life more difficult, and they have a film that they've sold, and he's having to take on a lot more responsibility for all of that, and it was all getting to be too stressful. And it wasn't just me that he told. He told his co-workers, or he told me that he told his co-workers and everyone in his life that he just needed to pull back for a while and take care of himself. And of course, uh, my overwhelming concern was for my friend's mental health and health in general. And he, like he, even he said that he wanted to, rec- he would, was willing to record a few more episodes and then end it entirely. And I just thought that was sort of, first of all, he didn't need to do any more. And I figured we'd talk and figure out 
if we're going to end the end the, the the podcast or just whatever because he sounded like he was in distress and he said we'd talk next week and that was the last I've heard from him and you know whatever we had lots of episodes in the can and it's just a podcast I mean I love it but it it is just that and so I gave him a month or so of space. I think I reached out around Thanksgiving to say, hey, happy guilt fast. <laughs> and uh, and then just letting him know that I, uh, as we approached this episode where I was going to have to record an outro, uh, I would like to know from him how he'd like to have me talk about it. Um, because... I figured that would be the best. And maybe we could talk about it together. We could record the outro together, whatever. Just I wanted to see how he was. Um, still, no response. And then a couple of weeks ago, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was in a major car accident. Uh, I was on my way to see the Ernst Lubitsch film, Clooney Brown, at the New Beverly Theater, and I flipped my car in rush hour traffic uh, on Beverly Boulevard, near the corner of Larchmont and Beverly, for those who were familiar with the geography of Los Angeles. Uh, I flipped my car in rush hour traffic. It was a four-car uh, four accident in which, miraculously, neither I nor anyone involved was physically injured. Um, I'll include some pics from the accident on the two Jake's post on the website. So you can see it's wild. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how I survived. Uh, no one who's seen any of it can <laughs> explain why I am totally okay. Uh, but as, uh, near death experiences tend to do to those who experience them, my priorities shifted more important than the podcast or the movie we were working on together. I just, I unbearably missed my friend and was worried about him. At this point, I, you know, I didn't know if he was in a mental institution or what, you know, no, I, there's no communication. And I'm, and the last communication there was seemed, you know, admittedly frantic and disturbed. And this is someone I talk to every week, whether or not we're doing a podcast for the last three years. Um, so at, at, at anyway, at this point, the, the need to know what was going on with him and why he wasn't responding to my requests for communication, it, it just started to <clears throat> grow exponentially and feel more urgent. Um, I should step in and say, uh, step in, I'm interrupting myself to say, it, you know, this film deals with anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. I always, I want to say anti-Semitism, but I always say anti-Semitism. There's lots of cognitive dissonance for anyone when they are confronting the patterns of oppression that they, that have nothing to do with them personally, that they've inherited through culture or whatnot. Uh, but now is probably a good time to talk a little bit about Jewish terror because uh, that's the veil through which I experience a lot of life. Um, you know, we all experience fear and in some cases terror in 
different ways because of our personal and because of our cultural experiences. Getting pulled over by a cop is necessarily more frightening an experience for motorists of color than for white drivers. Walking through an empty garage at night is going to be a more harrowing experience for women than men. And for Jews who have a long cultural memory of having our neighbors and friends go from treating us like neighbors and friends to treating us like some toxic nuisance which needs to be disposed of, often to existentially devastating effects, having a good friend ghost you is a more terrifying experience than it might be for people whose background does not carry the weight of this cultural trauma. Or I, this is what I believe. I take it as, well, this is my experience. You know, of course, getting pulled over by cops is stressful for anyone, I imagine. Uh, I certainly feel totally stressed out when I get pulled over by cops. And by the same token, nobody likes being ghosted by a friend. It's a, it's a stressful, uh, annoying, trauma, you know, traumatizing experience. Uh, if, if you have the trauma receptors for it, and I'm sure that, and that's certainly not limited to Jewish people. Um, I guess my point is that at my own experience that through the veil of my Jewish terror, when this happens, it's easier to allow, or it's easy to allow the psychological impact to cascade out of control and to feel like I'll never be fully welcome or accepted by my non-Jewish loved ones or in the countries in which uh, I'm this particular kind of minority. Um, You know, I said Brian's spoken openly about his mental health issues on the podcast. I've spoken openly about my issues with anti-Semitism. And, uh, and that's why I feel like I, gotta, I want to address it here. Because I'm getting to a point of trying to get to something that's useful. I'm not just trying to complain or gossip. That's not what this is about. Um, so going back to the last time I spoke with Brian... It was in mid-late October of here, 2022, and I realize now that it's not even been two months, so maybe I'm freaking out. I don't know, uh, but you got to understand that at this time, that there's all of this that was going on between me and Brian, which was really nothing, this conversation where Brian was letting me know the struggles he was having, it coincided with this rise in this rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric that has just um, sort of been growing throughout this last fall and winter. I mean, it was for something that for me was at a low hum all the time and had certain spikes. It's now that low hum is getting to be more of a high pitched siren. And I think a lot of people who are Jewish are experiencing that right now in the United States of America and around the world. Um, 
but when we did speak, I, I had to point out to Brian that it was it 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 was it was uh, I let him know that my f- uh, sensitivity to anti to anti semitism was engaged because it felt weird that his response to having his other Jewish friend, his co-writer, his his writing partner, behaving in a way which was you know, making his life uncomfortable. His response to that was to distance himself from his other close Jewish friend. So when I pointed this out to him, he did something that a lot of people do. I'm sure I, I've definitely done when people have tried to, my friends who have different uh, trauma receptors have tried to point out, say, my sexism or uh, whatever, classism, homophobia, racism. Uh, to respond and say, oh, well, I, I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, and he didn't really say I'm not an anti-Semite, but he, he was, it was really important to him that I, that I, I knew that he's not an anti-Semite. And of course, I, of course I know that. Um, he would, in this point, jump in and say, I have Shemp tattooed on my shoulder or on, on his body somewhere. And, uh, and I would laugh. And uh, so of course not. But that's. I also tried to point out that that's not what it's about. I'm trying to point out the the dynamic that I have to live in. You know that it just felt weird. You know, lose two Jews for the price of one. Um, but anyway, we laughed and we talked about how we were going to talk next week, and then that's the last time I heard from him. And then just today, as I amped up my efforts to and I broadened my scope of trying to reach out to people uh, to find out what was going on Uh, a mutual friend who I'd reached out to uh, informed me that Brian had told him we'd had a falling out which was the first I'd heard of it Uh, as time wore on I'd suspected that this whole thing might be more about Brian's feelings about me than he let on, but I was trying not to think that way. This is another aspect of Jewish trauma. We spend so much time uh, we spend so much time trying not to be paranoid that we often miss the obvious. And I guess the terrifying aspect of it is that the obvious is sometimes that people want to exterminate us. <laughs> not that that's Brian that he wants to exterminate me. Certainly not. Uh, But, again, uh, the feeling is there, and it's strong. I mean, just uh, just a month ago, uh, I think after we recorded this episode, but before uh, any of this became an issue, uh, my girlfriend and I flew to Austin to celebrate Brian's birthday with him and his wife, Uh, to go see an Adam Sandler film festival he was hosting at the Austin Film Society and for he and I to workshop a screenplay he just completed the second draft of that he wanted me to play a role in and that we were producing together. Uh, We were production partners on it. I don't, we may still be, I don't know. Um, And during that visit, there was nothing uh, missed between us, uh, but on two different occasions, his wife, who I like and have no beef with, said a couple of things that were very pointed and insulting, uh, directed at me, that my girlfriend noticed. And I mean, it was, they were 
they were weird, uncomfortable moments. Uh, and Brian assured me that she had no ill will towards me and that this is the way she comes off to lots of people. And as someone who comes off in a wrong way to lots of people, I have huge sympathy for that. And uh, as in the other example I cited, I told myself, you know, I'm just being paranoid. Uh, but I also they were uncomfortable interactions directed at me. And so there was still a little bit of like, oh, I'm looking forward to being able to get on a good page with her someday. Um, but now I can't help but think that some of that hostility towards me that uh, that might have influenced Brian's uh, decisions. I don't even know what they are, his absence and what I've, the information I have so far. Um, and oof, that's a that's a rough feeling when you feel like a friend of yours has been turned against you by someone who doesn't know you, and even if it's someone as important as their their family. It's just especially if it's someone as important as their family. Uh, God, I had a friend who once said he's like, oh, I don't know how you deal with it about a diff totally different situation, but similar of someone I just knew didn't like me, and he's like. I can't even deal with it when someone's cat doesn't like me. <laughs> um, anyway, considering that we are still in the middle of Hanukkah when this comes out and that Two Jakes is a film that addresses anti-Semitism, I figured I would try and transform this trauma into something that could be useful for our listeners who clearly enjoy a friendship between an Italian and a Jew who are open in their conversations about their struggles with mental health and anti-Semitism. And uh, make of it what you will. But I want to talk about uh, how to be a good Jewish ally. Because I know, like for example, I know my friend Brian definitely wants to be that in the world regardless of me. Maybe I make it impossible. I don't know. I know I interrupt too much. I get excited. Believe me, I'm sure this annoys me more than it could possibly annoy him because he doesn't have to listen. He doesn't listen to these. Um, but I think maybe some of you also might feel the same way of like, I don't want to be an anti-Semite. Let me tell you, if you're listening to this podcast this far, you're probably not. But it doesn't mean you're not capable of being uh, blind to or uh, unaware of how it is for your Jewish friends. So, and a lot of this is going to be me trying to, it's going to be addressing the stuff I just talked about. There's many other, so I'm, I'm speaking from a place of a traumatized person trying to do their best. Okay, see if I can get through this. First of all, it helps when being friends with anyone who comes from a culture which has experienced massive trauma 
to try and understand that trauma before it becomes traumatic. And this is on each of us. If there are people we love and we know that they come from a situation that hurt them before we got to know them, maybe before they got to know themselves, we can learn about it. And uh, we can part of that can be asking them stuff and part of that could be figuring stuff out on our own based upon asking other people's stuff, reading, uh, whatever, I don't know. Movies, right there, movies are empathy machines, right, Roger Ebert? So, uh, you know, there's lots of ways. Anyway, listen to a podcast like this. Anyway, so if we're interested in the trauma of our friends because we want to be there for them when they experience that trauma, well, this builds a foundation for when conflicts arise because they always do. Uh, And when they do, it's going to be natural for the person from a traumatized culture to want to explain this cultural trauma to their friend because that's the, again, the veil, the receptors they have for, we have for all of our experiences. We all have for our experiences. You may want this from your friend as well. You probably do, based upon your trauma receptors. Um, And when that happens, you might say, this feels like sexism, or this feels like racism, or in my case, a lot of times when I'm in conflict with someone and me feeling misunderstood, I'll say, this feels like anti Semitism. I wish I had said this feels like anti-Semitism, but I'll be so stressed out that I'll say this feels like anti-Semitism. And if our response to this when someone tells us this is to say, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm not a racist, I'm not a sexist, then we're missing the point. Because it's not about whether we are the bad thing in that moment. It's that our friend is experiencing the bad thing with us and trying to share it with us and desperately hoping that our friend will understand. Basically, you can either listen or defend yourself, and it is very hard to do both. Um, I'm... I am no expert at that. <laughs> I'm like everyone else. I do my best and fail a lot. But uh, sometimes the strategy of listening and being interested actually works. Um, uh, as this all relates to particularly to being friends and allies to Jews, it's important to understand that if you've regularly signaled to your Jewish friend that. You enjoy them, and consider them one of your best friends, and go out publicly and promote the stuff that you're doing together, and all of a sudden, for reasons you don't share with them, stop communicating with your Jewish friend while telling other mutual friends that there's some kind of conflict between you that the Jewish friend is totally unaware of. And if there's a feeling that some other, perhaps more intolerant person might be influencing your decision to stop communicating with your Jewish friend, well, I cannot speak for all Jews, but I am pretty sure, pretty sure that many of us would experience this as 
analogous to the way Jews have been treated throughout history, which is terrifying. And obviously very sad. Clearly, I'm having feelings. I hope that's okay with you. On the other hand, if you do wish to be a good ally to your Jewish friends, here are some things you might consider. One, if you're having difficulties in the friendship, be honest and direct about them. That's, the, that's a strategy I, that I think every Jewish person I know would appreciate. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some of you out there, my, my Hebrews and um, Shebros, you may be saying, I don't, I'm not that way. Don't, don't talk to me. <laughs> that's okay, too. That's a pretty direct way of putting it. Be direct. They may say, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, but they'll appreciate that you were direct. I would appreciate, as a, I think that's, a, that's a, a common strategy that you can count on. And I also understand that it can be, uh, can be too much. It would be best if you not say that the Jewish friend is too much, but that the situation can be too much for you. And if in all relationships, it's, you should be, always be able to say, I need to take a break in communicating. This, I gotta, that's a boundary. You get to have your boundaries. And set a time to reconnect. That's the part I think that, uh, again, maybe everyone would appreciate, but I think your Jewish friend will appreciate even more. And then it's important that when you set that time to reconnect, you actually show up there or have some communication so that that person isn't wondering if you're still their friend or if you've uh, joined the Nazi party, (laughs) which is the terror not really afraid that you it had anything to do with your Jewishness, but that that dynamic is now in play. And we're wondering, does it have to do with that or doesn't it? That's why direct communication is so much better. So it creates safety. Um, that was, those are three points. I'm, I actually made a little list here, so I'm just going through it. This is point four. If one of the difficulties you're having with your Jewish friend is the way other people talk about or treat them when they're not around? Well, if you can live up to it, you should let your Jewish friend know that you're going to defend them, that you are defending them, and that you will defend them, and and that you won't allow other people's intolerance to drive a wedge between you and your Jewish friend. In the workplace, in relationship, uh, in friendship, Be like Jack, you know, how he was with Robert Evans. Five, through any of this kind of dynamic I'm describing, whatever difficulties you are having with your Jewish friend are likely to be experienced by that friend through some level of Jewish trauma, as I've described. And while it's good to know that your friend is loyal to you, it's still traumatizing for your Jewish friend to know that others have ill will towards them that may or may not be influenced by cultural prejudice. And there's a good chance that the push and pull of this is going to be at issue for the entirety of your friendship. Them, your Jewish friend wondering, what are other people saying to this person about me? And will they stand up for me or will they 
I don't know, abandon you to the Nazis in their friend group. The people who feel like Nazis, because they're not actual Nazis. It's just the feeling. Uh, a lot of women I know will just talk about rapists as if they're all men, knowing that all men aren't rapists, but you have to be afraid that all men are rapists. And you have to be afraid that the people who hate a Jew in a particular group might hate them because they're Jewish without even knowing it. Um, that's how deep it goes. Without knowing that it's an actual animosity towards Jews, but just an animosity towards people who talk the way I talk or we talk, and whatever, look, whatever. It's cultural prejudice. Um, and I'm, okay, I'm moving through my list. Six, if the difficulties between you lead to an end of the friendship, which sometimes happens, if you care about that person, do your best to honor the friendship that was. And if the end of the friendship is your decision, take responsibility for your decision instead of blaming it on your Jewish friend. Uh, I think, that again, that's true for everyone, but mm, it'd mean a lot. I'd like to see you put it in practice. If, you, if you're, you know, go, don't go out and end your Jewish friendships to end them this way, but if you're going to, have some honor about it. I think it'll make a difference for their next friend. Or for their other friends. I hope you can get what's implied by my uh, Freudian slip there. Um, here's the last one. I guess I have seven, seven notes for being a better friend to your Jewish friends. All of these strategies apply to communicating through difficulties in any friendship. I can only speak from my experience and those of other Jews who I know have had similar feelings about similar situations because they've told me. And I think that the fear that your longtime friend can overnight begin treating you like you don't exist and are somehow hostile to them and that now they kind of just don't matter. That feeling is so analogous to the image of neighbors shutting up their windows when the Gestapo comes to take you away that if you don't want to terrorize your Jewish friend, you should do your best to keep Jewish terror in mind and do what you need to do to do whatever you need to do without inflicting unnecessary mental trauma on the person who is or was your good friend just because you're afraid of a direct conversation. And that might be your own cultural pattern for which I have sympathy. And when you get in friendships, it gets tough if you're the kind of person who needs communication and you're friends with someone who is terrified of that kind of communication. Um, and I guess if that's the case, maybe the only way to communicate is through a podcast, which is pathetic. But as an artist, 
I have never shied away from the pathetic, especially as an actor. I think is you know you got to be willing. You got to be willing. You got to be willing. Anyway, I think I'm going to end this here. I'm still hoping Brian chooses to reach out and communicate about this and that he may even consider coming on the podcast to discuss it. Even though I am obviously deeply hurt by all of this, he's my friend. I love him. I want to be his friend. Uh, We've known each other for decades and we've never been at odds over anything. We couldn't work out over a phone call that ended with us telling each other how much we loved and appreciated each other. So, so mote it be. We have this and three more episodes in the can, and if Brian and I don't work this out, I'll probably use these outros to work through my thoughts and feelings about how and if to continue the podcast. If you're listening and you think you have some useful insights to share, I'd love to hear them. And our email address is contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast on Twitter at world is wrong pod. And of course you can find posts for each of our episodes at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find my work as an actor, songwriter, author, and podcaster at www.previouslyyours.com and www.andrasjones.com. Why do I say the www? I'm so 20th century. They're both the same site. Anyway, uh, I'm pretty sure Brian is going to be continuing with the Director's Wall podcast, which I continue to support and encourage you to do so as well. Um, It's a great podcast. And I was really excited to be on... One of their most recent episodes, which we rebroadcast in our feed on the the Coppola film, The Rainmaker. And um, next week's episode will be about the film Tequila Sunrise. A, whew, uh, yeah, a film the world is wrong about. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we said. I don't even remember. We recorded it last September. Uh, and if you want to hear happy times, that's that's check us out for that episode. And then uh, who knows what we'll do with the outro. Until then, whenever then is, please remember, wherever you are, the world is wrong. Uh, and it's probably wrong about you. <laughs> what do you call four drowning Mexicans? You know who Lou Escobar is? Yeah. He's captain of detectives in homicide. You know you turned his sister down for a house? Had to be done. Had to be done. Folks, here is Eucalyptus Place. Oh, they are 17. I'll be with you in a moment. Okay, no problem. Jake? Jake?
I'm sure you're going to love living in El Rancho San Fernando. Oh, we, we sure are. are. Yeah, thank you. You know who else couldn't buy a house here? Me. I can build it and I can sell it just as long as I don't move in next door. They don't want Mexicans or Jews around. Let me tell you something else. The customer is always right. I got a wife to protect. Protect? You mean divorce, don't you? Yeah. That too, yeah. You know, your wife is a possible accessory in this. What? Come on. If the one time you can murder a man and make him pay for it, one way or the other, she helped. You stay away from my wife or else. I recognize that as a valid threat coming from you, Mr. Berman, but the police are going to think the same thing. You murdered your partner for his half of the subdivision and five or six million dollars to which you and your wife are now legally entitled. Yeah, Ty, what's the problem? Oh, uh, Tyrone Otley, J.J. Giddis. I know Mr. Giddis from the DWP when I worked for Hollis Moray. Mr. Berman, it's the same problem. These earthquakes are shaking up our water wells like soda pop. Only it's not soda pop. It's millions of gallons of water and gas under all these homes. And it's getting hazardous. What do you mean hazardous? It could explode. But you said it was marsh gas. I thought only natural gas was explosive. Mr. Berman, whether it comes from an old marsh or baked beans, all gas is natural. Gas is gas. How do I get rid of it? Call a gas company. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show. 